Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. central magnetic points and uh, center of gravity is certainly one of them. And uh, it's because of a lot of uh, very connecting work that uh, this gentleman has done. And so we're very pleased that he's able to join us today and have a wonderful morning. Can we uh, arrange ourselves so we're even closer? (laughs) This is how we build community. You get to learn your social body. so glad to be here. This is uh, my first time teaching in three weeks after a nice holiday. (laughs) And um, I just want to start by saying that uh, it's worth interrupting the holidays to be here because I I think what Matthew's doing and uh, Scott and all the volunteers who make this thing happen is really wonderful. And what's most wonderful, and I shouldn't say this because I'm about to you know, offer a class is actually not just what happens in these rooms, but what happens when people leave these rooms and meet on the escalator and the elevator and on the stairs and so on. And I think those interactions actually are my memory of previous festivals and how nice it is for people to interact. 
So, um, what I'd like to do is to start speaking, and then I would also like it if once in a while someone put up their hand and interrupted me, uh, if you have a question or a comment, so that because we have two hours together, uh, I don't just want to hear myself uh, speaking for the whole two hours, and I would like to also have some conversation, especially because there are a lot of people in this room who do really good work. Um, and who also do really good work opening up conversation and leading conversations in our uh, communities. Does that sound okay? <laughs> All right. And I actually have notes, which is kind of rare. Yeah. I, I don't even know what the title is of the... <laughs> What's the title? What's Yoga for a World Out of Balance? <laughs> so I'm just going to make a talk and seem related to yoga and a world out of balance. Actually, everything anybody teaches this weekend, I assume, has to do with yoga and a world out of balance. Um, I, I practice and I teach uh, yoga because I think yoga is a uh, vehicle for waking people up, uh, not just internally in their own psychology and physiology, but also in community, in society, in our institutions, so that we can bring uh, militarism and consumerism to an end. <laughs> for me, that's the definition of what this practice is. And it's a practice that I think can deal equally with our own internal patterns of greed, uh, addiction, anger, uh, delusion, confusion, and also can deal with institutionalized versions of greed uh, and delusion. And I think it's not just enough uh, to practice internally in ways that work with our own uh, addictions and patterns that lead to exhaustion and fatigue. Uh, we also have to take our practice out into the world so it's not just private and practice in everything that we do um, so that we can also start to uh, change society through the way we do our communities and friendships. Um, this is what I'm interested in. So this is hopefully what we can talk about and debate. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says that the next Buddha is Sangha. So the next Buddha is not going to be a single person, in his opinion, but is actually going to be community. Uh, the teachings of Patanjali and the teachings of the Buddha um, and I draw on these because my work these days is looking at the relationship between uh, these two uh, systems, um, came out of an iron age where the individual was being focused on because there was a social fabric and a class system that was leading to a repression of one's individual uh, nature. And I could talk more academically about that, which I won't. But I would say that, that in our times, it's exactly the opposite. That we're living in times where the context is so individual. And that actually what we need to bring to the surface 
is the collective and the social. And so when I talk about yoga and awakening, what I want you to hear is awakening of a culture, awakening of a neighborhood, a practice that can create flourishing cities and communities and parks and galleries and all the other places that are magnets for suffering, hospitals, uh, prisons, schools, places where uh, we find um, structural violence and patterns of suffering that uh, we're not going to solve by getting better at headstands and handstands and backbends. But we're going to solve by taking our practice out into the world and not allowing our practice to be internal and private. Um, and also not allowing practice to become just a product. Um, which, you know, we see it slipping into all the time. Um, not allowing yoga to be absorbed into the culture um, as a product. Because otherwise it can't stand apart from the culture and critique the culture. Because it's been totally absorbed into a uh, lifestyle. <laughs> Um, any any comments before? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think one of the ways we participate—it's so general to say we, you know, as we do this—but but I think one of the ways that we contribute to this, consciously and unconsciously, is we're living at a time I think where people like to come into a yoga studio and do a practice a physical practice that makes them feel better. And this is a great doorway. There's, there's nothing wrong with this. But what tends to happen, aside from the fact that often it's just a commercial interaction, um, is that people are anonymous. So they don't necessarily develop a relationship with a teacher. Uh, they don't have any investment in cleaning the bathroom of the place where they're practicing or um, knowing how much it costs to rent the space and what the overhead is and how they can contribute to creating a space where these yoga classes can happen. I think secondly, we often think that the only way we can share yoga is to become a teacher and to teach people to do downward facing dog. But actually we, we share yoga by how we are in our communities. Um, when you say you want to share this practice and you're only thinking about teaching somebody how to do ujjayi pranayama, I think it's, it's such a, a sliver of what this practice is and a good doorway, but just small. And I think when we live in these kind of singular ways or fractured ways in our community, in self-centered ways, I think over time we start to realize that we can't really be happy. Selfish happiness is an oxymoron. You, you can't be selfishly happy. We're most happy when we're helping others. And so I think that the yoga um, uh, um, class is actually a place where we can start to develop a community based on values that are different than the values we find in store windows.
um, in our schools, in our prisons, and so on. And um, the reason why I'm speaking like this is because most of you are involved in yoga studios, co commercial studios. And it'd be nice for these centers to start to think about themselves as community centers. And there's so much we can do together um, to help plant seeds of um, uh, the, the five yamas, uh, not, not causing harm, which lately I've been translated as, you know, not living in a way that exploits or kills life. Um, not stealing, being honest, using energy wisely, and not being greedy. And I know this all sounds like not doing this and not doing that, and that, that's not exactly what, what's meant. What's meant is a, is a kind of encouragement to, to have a value system. But you know, when you don't feel yourself living in community, ethics and values are not really that important in a way because you don't see the effect of, of your actions necessarily. I mean, look at where we are right now, this beautiful room, you know. And I would say, and I don't know this for sure, but I would say probably 80% of the materials in this room, or maybe 99% of the materials in this room, come from places we don't know, right? Or they're manufactured somewhere we don't know. And the world is becoming uh, more and more interconnected in a very thick web. Um, but actually what's happening is that the effect of manufacturing processes and so on uh, are not being seen in our community. You know, we just had the G20 and G8 here in Ontario. And um, what was interesting about those meetings is that the consequences of the decisions uh, that were made in those meetings are not felt in Toronto. They're felt in Saskatchewan, where uranium is being mined to sell to India, where they're building can-do nuclear reactors all over to meet the Kyoto Protocol, which we can't even meet. So, so the point is we see interconnectedness, but we don't see the effect of our actions. And until we start to see the consequences of our actions, not just internally, but in our communities and in our friendships, there's no real motivation, I think, um, to affect change. And I see this a lot in psychotherapy, um, where you see people with addiction, you know, and there's no motivation to change because our habits are comfortable. Even though they're uncomfortable, they're, they're comfortable. And there's no motivation to change until they see the consequences of their actions. And sometimes it's not enough to see the consequences in your body. It's not enough to see that you know, heroin or whatever is ravaging your body. Usually the motivation is when you see the consequences in your kids or in, 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 in your community. And then people get motivated to, to change. Doesn't that take a generation? It can take a moment. It, it, it could take uh, thousands of years. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
like, or the, the strawberries it had to be picked. Yes. And it had to be shipped and, you know. Yes. So there is that connectedness, but it also means that they were not mindful. And it's easier not to be mindful because yeah. Yeah. Well, if I was following my notes, I would have already talked about that. I'm, I'm just like going on and, and uh, maybe I should follow my notes. I was going to, you know, talk all about. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to I'm going to follow my notes for a couple. Of the first thing I was going to do is, you know, and I know most of you in here, and and most of you know that. I often d define the word yoga as uh, intimacy. Uh, to, to really see the inherent intimate connection of everything. The, the, the word yoga comes from the verb yuj, which means to unite. And you hear a lot of people say yoga is to unite the breath or to unite the body, but it's not. That's yuj. Yuj is a verb, to unite. Yoga means united, union that everything's already inherently interconnected except that we forget. So everything's inherently unified, but we've forgotten. And so we practice. Every morning I wake up and I forget. And um, I like to translate this as intimacy, which is directly related to the kind of healing that I'm trying to talk about. I look around this room and I, I know it's so nice to know so many people. And I know some of you need healing in your body. Your, your shoulder is, is wrecked <laughs> from falling off your bicycle. Um, some of you need healing from anxiety, pervasive anxiety. Um, some of you need healing from um, impatience. Some of us need healing from anger. Some of us need to heal our depression. There's a kind of sadness. It leads to a kind of apathy and dead, deadness and meaninglessness. Um, our, our governments need healing. As long as people are in prison, we need healing. Robert Aitken just passed away, some of you know, uh, uh, last Thursday. He's 93. And I heard him say once, um, uh, everybody in prison should be released now. This was his practice. I just spent a week with Fleet Mall, who works all over the United States building hospices in prisons. building hospices and prisons. The United States spent, has more people in prison per capita than any country on earth. So this is interconnectedness. For people to be on the inside, there has to be an outside. Um, our families and communities need healing. Who here doesn't have a family that's in need of healing? <laughs> and um, our bodies and minds together need to be healed. 
And so when we practice asana, which we're going to explore this afternoon, you know, the way I teach asana is so much focus on mula bandha. That at the end of your exhale, your breath comes down into the pelvic floor and it pauses. And there's a, there's a, a felt sense of the breath at the end of the pelvic floor. At the end, of, uh, the end of the breath, rather, in the pelvic floor. And there's a pause. And in order to really feel that pause, the mind has to be completely concentrated. This is called a banda, which is where we get the English word bond, which is the bonding of the chitta, of our attention span, and vedana, feeling. Bonding your attention to what you feel at the end of an exhale, in this kshana, or this moment which is really a profound practice of concentration. And not concentration in some high realm where it's like you disappear, but concentration and feeling at the same time, the body, in the present moment. This is yoga. This is intimacy. In the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, that union of chitta and vedana is actually the, 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 the goal of Hatha Yoga to actually feel what's going on in present experience, to be united with how things are, just like this. The light coming in this room, sound of my voice, whatever's going on for you. To be one with this. And you know, sometimes we say oneness is like when, when people say the word oneness, I always think of like dropping acid and being in the rainforest, <laughs> like hugging a tree. And, but, but actually, t- to really be one with your life, to be one with loneliness, to be one with sadness, to be one with burnout, to be one with joy, How many of us have forgotten how to be joyful? All the therapists put up their hands. So each one of us needs healing. And the heart, the body. um, And the only way to heal, the only way we can heal, is through intimacy, is through yoga. Is through, is through the yoking of what's going on in your life and this heart and mind and body and community that we're in. Maybe that sounds kind of simplistic, but really, um, it's quite simple. And we work so hard to avoid intimacy because it screws up our plans. We can't be intimate with other people because we have plans for them. (laughs) And we can't be intimate with ourselves. I can't be intimate with this body because I have an image of it in the future. I can't be intimate with samadhi or enlightenment because I think it's separate from me. But enlightenment is the ultimate cognitive dissonance of being awake and seeing that others are suffering. 
and holding that at once. This is yoga. It's not perfect. If there are people in prison, you cannot be free. We're interconnected. We're all interconnected. If you really believe and you feel how we're interconnected, then even though you feel free, you're still restrained by other people's suffering. Last week, I, yeah. There's still that, there's still, where we live and we, we put our boundaries. And maybe it's harder when we put our own boundaries versus being a poet. I think you, you develop your own freedom to live. Sure. And maybe our own boundaries are the hardest ones to break. And what about the ones inside of us? I'm talking about these big cultural systems, yeah. but what about in us, the, the parts of ourselves that don't communicate with each other? Which is I want to focus on a little later. All those parts in us that we have uh, pushed away that don't communicate with the rest of us. And, and then how that manifests in the kind of world we choose to live in. Because we have to choose a world that supports those splits in us. Last week, I, I spent a day with these um, uh, in, in the States with this group who have developed this application for the iPhone called uh, Good Guide. So here's what they do. They, you go into a supermarket. You, let's say you want, I mean, let's say that, you know, some of you are like eco-parents and you want to get like the best shampoo for your baby. You say, oh, the best shampoo is such and such a company. So you take the barcode and you scan it in your iPhone, and out comes um, uh, where that product was made, um, all the ingredients in it, and it rated. And you can choose preference for how you want products rated. Child labor, uh, what happens to the product after it's used, um, its carbon footprint, anything. And they have millions of products now that they've researched. So that's interconnectedness on the iPhone. In a split second, any product, you can scan any product in any supermarket. And you can see, it's, and I'm not just talking about, you know, just, uh, you know, whether there's uh, some kind of glycol in it, but it's whole life cycle. How it was made and what happens to it when you're done. This is amazing to me. And it was started by this group of scientists and academics in Berkeley, California, who felt that nowadays you go into a store, Lululemon or Starbucks or whatever, um, and when you go to Starbucks, I was just in a Starbucks, and it says in Starbucks, um, it's not just what you're buying, but what you're buying into. <laughs> and so what we've done with capitalism now, you know, is we, we've, we've created, built into the product. So we used to have this idea in, in capitalism that, that you buy a product, 
you use it, and then if there's some profits or some benefit, then you give it away. But now corporations have found this way to actually put them together. So when you buy a product, you're also buying a feeling good, a warm feeling. That when I buy this Starbucks coffee, I'm buying into something. I'm buying into no child labor. I'm buying into a company that purchases more free trade coffee than any company on earth. Right? I'm buying, and, and let's be truthful, when you buy an organic apple, it's not just that it's organic and good for you, but you get this warm feeling, <laughs> uh, this good feeling. So now we have these products where we've, we've, it's been hijacked, you know? Um, and why is this important? It's important because we need to see through that. And so these scientists and academics have come up with this good guide so that instead of the, the company telling you uh, how good they are, you can actually see the science behind it. So it's really interesting. I, I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but the reason why I'm bringing it up is because nowadays interconnectedness is in everything we do. In everything we do. And we, and we need to really give attention to the effect of our actions. And this stretches all the way from Mula Banda through our consumer purchases and how we create organizations and how we build communities. Is this making sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, we'll keep going, but there was a hand, a hand I, up. I was going to just say, oh, yeah. doesn't it support consumerism if you have to buy an iPhone to use this app to be able to look at? <laughs> oh, yeah. Isn't it sort of a... Yeah. yeah and to, 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 to know, like, I, I, I agree, it's wonderful yeah. to be able to, to look at sort of the blueprint of a company, so to speak, and yeah. see what they're doing and whatever, but it's still only available to a certain yeah. section of community yeah. because of... Sure. The financial aspect yeah. of it. Hey, do you know what else you can do on this thing? You can. I, I don't actually even have a cell phone. So I don't, I don't really know, but they were showing me. So the next thing you can do on this thing is you can actually see what parties the company gives money to. And so they gave an example of the 10, uh, of, of 10 diaper companies, including all the ones you find in your health food store, and the ones in the health food store actually gave more money to Republican uh, um, um, parties than any of the other companies. And as a consumer, you just start to go, like, how, how do I deal with it? And it's not about how, just how you deal with it, but just to see the web. Just to see the web. And of course, we can critique the iPhone. I mean, all the coal being burned. I mean, we think we live in an information age, but we, we still live in the industrial age. If you think you live in the information age, you live in a privilege you need to look behind. Uh, we live in an industrial age. All these iPhones are, are run because of coal. <laughs> you just don't see the smokestacks anymore. Um, so, you know, we can go into critiquing that. And, uh, but I'm just using this one example, of course. But it subverts it, too. Yeah. Because mm, it's a tool of power. Mm. Yeah. It subverts, it subverts it. it. At the same because time. It's too I mean, it's, it empowers 
the consumer. So in a way, um, if you think consumer consumerism disempowers your 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 choice and your agency, this is subverting it by giving you back your power. Yes, you've had your hand well, so patiently. Um, yeah, just when you brought up Starbucks, I um, I never go to coffee shops, but I went with my sister and and bought my you know organic tea, whatever it was. And looking at the cup, um, it was like thank you for all these green things you've been helping us do over the last ten years. Um, they were saying you know whatever eco-friendly things they were trying to say the company was doing. And um, and I forget the phrasing, but they were basically saying like, oh, look at all these great things you've done. And I'm sitting there thinking, no one who buys a tea from Starbucks has actually done any of this, but they give you this feeling that you've been mm -hmm. an activist at yeah. some basic level and I feel like that really creates even more apathy like yeah. oh I don't need to do anything all I need to do is buy a coffee and it's done <laughs> <laughs> and it's done for me yeah. Yeah. so before we keep going in more conversation I, I feel like I've offered a little bit of critique and, and I could keep going but I actually I wanted to just offer a few uh, comments about what yoga has to say about, about this because we, we could keep going in this direction, but, but yoga has a lot to say. And maybe just to follow on Simone's question, you know, because um, there is something about this practice um, and, and this way of being in the world um, that is profoundly uh, countercultural. And I just wanted to offer what some of those pieces are. So the first is, traditionally, I think we think of spiritual practice as something we do for ourselves. Uh, and when we get good enough, maybe, when we become a saint or whatever, then we can go out into the world and do good work. I have actually been told by teachers, um, when I first started practicing, just, just do your practice. And then one day you'll, you'll be awake enough to go into the world and take action. And um, uh, this summer I spent some time with a, a wonderful teacher named Bernie Glassman. And you know, he was talking about how when, when he was uh, starting to do activist work in New York City working with the homeless, his teacher said to him, you know, this is really good what you're doing, but don't do too much of it or you'll stain the practice. This is an idea, I think, that many of us have uh, hidden somewhere. Well, this is not the perspective of Patanjali. In fact, the first teaching for Patanjali is the yamas, which is clarifying our relationships. Clarifying our relationships. And he offers five practices to do in three different ways, in two different directions. And I just wanted to mention what they are. So the first is ahimsa, which means not having the intention to cause harm. And how do you practice this? Internally, 
not causing harm internally and externally. Not causing harm externally. And how do you practice that? Three ways. Body, speech, and mind. Well, let's just break that down. Uh, at Center of Gravity in our Sangha in October, we're starting an eight-month precept course. We meet every week for eight months. And the students are going to do this practice where for three, every three weeks you switch practices. The first practice is not causing harm internally to your body. Just to see your life this way. Second practice, not causing so three weeks later, not causing harm to other bodies. Then not causing harm in speech internally. Imagine if you just stopped there. <laughs> Imagine if we just worked on not having the intention to cause harm internally through how we talk to ourselves, through how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. Could you imagine your everyone's nodding almost? <laughs> or nodding off. Maybe you don't want to hear this. <laughs> You know, I, I teach a lot of retreats, and I actually am coming up with this theory that in meditation practice, what actually starts holding people back more than anything is not trusting themselves, is, is talking negatively to themselves. They think they're meditating. They're not meditating. They're judging how they're meditating. And you ask them how their practice is going, and they tell you what they think about how their practice is going. This kind of meta, negative meta. I don't mean meta in the Sharon Salzberg sense, but meta with one T. Um, this negative metacognition. So, so this, is, this is this practice. So it, you know, the idea is that if you're going to come and you're, you're going to really learn how to practice, this is the first commitment, five yamas. This is how we practice them, body, speech, and mind, internally and externally. Internally and externally. Um, can I read you something here? Um, I, ju I just wanted to read you Patanjali's words, because you're hearing a lot of mine. But I want you to hear how he describes ahimsa. This might surprise you. Because I think usually we hear of, of ethics as like, don't do this, or, you know, at Christmas time, Santa Claus will, you know, send you to a hell realm or whatever. But what's that? Yeah. L listen to, he has two lines. Um, he only says two things about nonviolence. Here's the first thing. We ourselves may act on unwholesome thoughts, such as wanting to harm somebody or harm ourselves. Or we may cause or condone this in others. Unwholesome thoughts arise from greed, anger, and confusion. They may be mild, they may be moderate, and they may be extreme. 
but they never cease to ripen into ignorance and suffering. This is why we must cultivate nonviolence. This is, by the way, the longest sentence in the text. If you ever chant it, it's really hard to chant this. And it, you have to really pay attention to how you're chanting it. It stands out as so different than a lot of the other sentences in the second chapter. And then he has one more sentence. This is my favorite one of the whole book. Being firmly grounded in nonviolence creates an atmosphere where others can let go of their hostility. He doesn't say being firmly grounded in nonviolence is going to give you a better birth. He doesn't say it's going to guarantee that you're going to escape this class you're in and get into a better class when you die. He doesn't tell you you're going to have a good birth. He doesn't tell you that you benefit. All he says is that when you're firmly grounded in non-harming, it creates an atmosphere where others can let go of their hostility. You cannot build nuclear weapons and tell other countries that they cannot build nuclear weapons. It, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, we do this, right, all the time. We even go and check to see if they're doing it. And where do they get the uranium? Canada. Saskatchewan. Being firmly, when I am firmly grounded in not causing harm to myself in how I talk to myself, my son benefits, my mother benefits, my neighborhood benefits, others benefit. This is what Patanjali said. Isn't this beautiful? This, this little section here of how he. Back to Sangha. The next Buddha is, will be Sangha. Yeah. The Dalai Lama says something similarly. He says, never judge an action by its effect, only by its motivation. Because what Patanjali is teaching here is karma, right? That your actions have an effect that you can't control. So the only thing you can take care of is your motivation. And if your motivation is based on self-centeredness, greed, addiction, and so on, um, we can imagine what the consequences will be. Yeah. Michael, can you tie that to your comment earlier about no need for prisons? Is there a connection? Yeah. My, my personal philosophy is uh, pick battles that are small enough to win, <laughs> but, but big enough to really matter. So they have to be big enough that they make a difference, but just small enough that you can win. But I have to say that most of the people who inspire me pick battles that they can't win. Uh, I was just talking about Bernie Glassman. His goal is to end homelessness in New York State. Robert Aitken's goal was to end the need for prisons. Do you know what kind of responsibility 
That is to create a community that can absorb people. Because, you know, I don't know how much of you know about statistics about prison, but, but you, most of you probably know that 87%, 87% of inmates in Canadian prisons are suffering from a mental illness. 87%. So imagine what it means to absorb that into your community. We also know that, that what heals illnesses like schizophrenia, for example, is not pharmaceuticals alone. It's uh, social structures. It's having those people as your neighbor in your families. It's taking care of them. But we live in this country where if people can't produce and consume, we have no place for them. Like mothers. You know. we, if you're not like making something, we don't have anywhere for you to go. No one's going to give you a free lunch. It's not like, you know, ashram culture. Where you can get a free lunch. Try, you know, meditating in Trinity Bellwoods Park and then going to the Bank of Montreal and saying... Could you feed us? <laughs> um, so what I meant by that comment about, about prisons is I really respect these people who, who set as their ideal these, these enormous um, tasks. Because um, it helps us recognize imbalances in our cultures and in ourselves. In ourselves. I know when I walk down the road, there are, there are people like the man who lives on the corner in the alley that some days I don't want to look at. I don't want to see them. And I can walk around my neighborhood and just see what I want to see. I can, I can move in my body in a way where I just feel what I want to feel, but not really what's there. Don't we all have this? When you, when you start practicing asana over many years, and you really practice, you know, you, you have a commitment, um, you'll start to encounter patterns of feeling that you don't want to feel. And that's a good time to quit and start a hobby. <laughs> but when you really go and enter that, that's samadhi. That's yoga. It's the integration, it's the intimacy with how things really are. And when we're in community, we have friends who point things out to us too. I, I have this in my community. And I hate it. <laughs> I just want to do it the way I want to do it. And so uh, I, I really some days just want to make a little ivory tower and live in there and control everything. <laughs> and then my best friends say, hey, no, 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 neti, neti, no, no, no. Um, that, that doesn't work. You, you know, you're being an asshole. <laughs> or that thing you did the other day was not so skillful. And my first reaction is often, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to talk to you. You're not my friend anymore. 
And then we stop and go, okay, well, what's here? What is this? And then we're really in, in our lives, our relational lives. There's nothing else. And this is nonviolence, isn't it? I mean, isn't there a relationship between not causing harm and listening and feeling moment to moment? Any other comments, questions? Rosalind? Uh huh. Yeah. I don't see it, I don't see it as, as a countercultural movement. Yeah. Right now. So, yeah. how, I don't know how, how can we, I don't know, like make that voice louder or promote it that way or be that way or something? So, yeah. Is this the absorption of the nature of the dilution? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, First of all, to, to really practice, here we are in this room, you know, where little bunheads practice are their arches and things, you know. And, uh, you know, maybe to see that, that, that what our practice is, is, it's like practice is like a compassion gymnasium, where we go in and we work the compassion muscles. We work the interconnectedness, the fascia. You know, if you want to know about interconnectedness, just really get to know what fascia are, how they function or don't function. Um, and so to really practice means um, to have really good teachers and to make sure, and, and, and what I mean by teachers is also sangha, and to make sure that you're not just self-inventing what you just like to do. And this is what I was saying earlier about the anonymous person in the yoga class who like goes and leaves. And nobody ever has a relationship with them and says, like, here is what your practice can be. But first I need to know what's going on in your life. What is going on in your life? One of my teachers, who I just spent time with this summer, said, you know, how many students do you have? Center of gravity. Couldn't remember. So write, write out their names. And we got to whatever number it was. She says, you can't really ever have more than 40. Because you, you, you can't keep up with more than 40 people. And no one ever said that to me before. I thought that was so brilliant. You, you can't have more than 40 students. Because you, you can't actually have a relationship with more than that many people. That's the most. So to have a relationship in a way where you're bringing to somebody, a friend, your teacher, what's actually going on, and then you're learning the skills to meet that. If you think that your difficulty with your sibling is going to be solved by your backbending practice, I'm not sure if it's the right tool. It's kind of the wrong tool for the job. But in the eight limbs of Patanjali, there are many practices. Like I've already described only three, which are quite profound. 
Um, we need to know what those tools are. And I feel like one thing that's happening is we're just focused on one kind of practice. And as we're going to talk about this afternoon, I don't even think that's done so much with much depth. It seems to be so focused just on the external geometry of the body and not necessarily really what's going on internally with the breath and feeling and so on. Um, so how to mature our practice so it's touching that level. And then so we have a lot of tools in our toolbox. And I think that's one of the ways it can interrupt this tendency to just self-sculpt our practice. Like, oh, this is what I like to do. Sometimes I do this, sometimes I do that. But actually to have a relationship with someone who's kind of like pointing out. Um, and again, this doesn't just have to be like a teacher on a pedestal. I think it's good to have teachers, but I think it's also good to have friends who can do this. Point out things you can't see over and over again. <laughs> Um, maybe today that's what I would stress and then the second thing is to make sure that the insights that are happening for you internally are being expressed so that you're not just having private experiences so when I first started practicing meditation for example I practiced in a tradition where you keep your mouth shut and you have all of these really incredible experiences internally. But you never are encouraged to, 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 to take them out into the world. And so one of the things we do at Center of Gravity, which people, John can talk about this, hate, <laughs> is to challenge each other, to talk together, often in groups, of how they're taking their practice into the world. So that you know your neighborhood you know the parts of yourself that need healing. And you work in that neighborhood. Some of you, your neighborhood is this, skin bag. Some of you, your neighborhood is Parkdale. Some of you, your neighborhood is Toronto. Some of you are doing work all over the world. Know the neighborhood and dig in. And really put your practice to work. And not to think of your practice as just teaching yoga postures. We're working right now to open up a second center of gravity in Parkdale in a, a building uh, that's being built at Queen and Dufferin uh, that's afford an affordable housing building. And we're, we're applying for a grant to offer seven years of uh, classes for free to community, a community that has affordability issues. So every day there is a yoga class a meditation class, a class on nutrition, family planning, money management. We need to, to teach people how to manage money. You know? And a lot of people need that class before they need to do sun salutations. Because they don't have any leisure time. Because they can't, they can't get it together to take care of themselves every month. That is yoga. The monk Basho is asked, what is your practice? And he responds, whatever is needed. 
to get your practice to a level where you can respond that way. What's needed in your neighborhood? Compassion without action is sterile. It's not enough just to feel compassion. We, we're human beings. We have to act. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in, in a minute. What, what time are we supposed to end? 12.30? Okay, good. Uh, does that begin to respond to your, your question? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's why I mentioned, you know, at Center of Gravity, this precept class we're about to start. You know, where if people say, oh, I practice at Center of Gravity. Well, I want to know what you're doing. So um, they're going to be, people are required to have interviews three times a year. Um, in, people are encouraged to take the precept class. Uh, we, so we do things like this. And what we're trying to do by creating this other space is to also have a venue where people who are interested in taking the skills that they're learning uh, have a place to do it. Because sometimes it's just too much to have an idea but not have a venue for actually where to do your work. Yeah. Um, and, and this is what, what I hope we can all do together. You know, I, I heard this, this, this guy uh, uh, last week, um, who was a wonderful man named Mathieu Ricard, um, who lives in France. Uh, and uh, some of you know his father was a great uh, French philosopher. And um, so he was just, uh, Time magazine just call, calls him the happiest man on earth. Because they just, you know, measured every something in him. He talked about uh, this one day they did this study. You know, they did MRIs and they had them all hooked up, right? And he's meditating. Uh, these scientists asked the Dalai Lama, "Who should we measure?" And he said, "Matthew Ricard." So they they hooked them all up, and he had to spend a day doing. Um, I won't go into all the science, but but he had to spend a day just in the morning practicing empathy. Just practicing empathy. So he would. Uh, so what he he was doing things like uh, visualizing his mother in a car accident. He comes across her. She's on the floor with her head half ripped off. Um, a sibling who's ill. You know, like kind of extreme examples. And and just practicing empathy. Just feeling empathy. And he talked about the power of just how you can resonate. And he also talked about how halfway through the day he couldn't do it anymore. He was totally burnt out and then had to go rest for a while. He was exhausted. We all know, I think, about uh, empathy fatigue, about burnout. And then he said, you know, he had to go back and figure out what, what went wrong. So then what he did was he started practicing um, love and kindness towards the situation, which he called compassion. And what he realized was there is a big difference between empathy and compassion. And how empathy without compassion is a recipe for burnout. And I had never really thought of this. And I was very interested. Uh, 
not just in the science, but I think we all know intuitively about this, that uh, it's not just enough to resonate with interconnectedness and to feel other people's joy and sorrow, but to actually act on it is compassion. But Michael, um, I mean, the yes. way I see it with um, social workers and, um, you know, after 10 years, <clears throat> 11 years, yeah. um, they have empathy burnout. And, and the way I see it is that they go into the victim position as well. So they, they feel that pain. And it, <laughs> but to me, compassion is staying in the place of aligning with unconditional love. And so your frequency is on the frequency of unconditional love, which sustains you but also expands into the other person. Yeah, so like what, compassionate what, curiosity, but from that place yeah, of alignment. Totally. The way Matthew described it is when he was empathetic, he became one with the other person. Mm -hmm. And it burned him out. And when he was feeling compassion, he felt uh, connected in himself and he felt the other person as another person. To me, I, I would say he's connected to Earth Source and his high self, yeah. and the other person is how I would. Yeah. Maybe he was thinking, he was thinking the journey of, in the end, he was taking the journey of the injured person or the person that's going through pain. This is his journey and the relationship to that. Well, if we tie it into Patanjali, Patanjali is saying you practice nonviolence internally and externally, both. The Buddha in the Satipatthana Sutta in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, in every instruction in the path, he talks about practicing internally and externally. Both. Yeah. And also, I mean. I'd say, you know, when I trained as a psychotherapist, one of the hardest parts of my education was learning about characters or symptoms in characters different than my own. So I can recognize certain symptoms because I know them. But I have a hard time recognizing symptoms that are outside of my experience. And I remember being so confounded sometimes. Be like, oh, I can't understand what's going on for that person because it's, it's not my experience. And usually I would just stop there. You know? But then to really you know, to take care of yourself enough that you're present and at the same time to try and drop into the other person's experience but without losing yourself. And also, I mean, intuition at that point. I mean, you can drop into a level of knowledge that's not your own personal knowledge if you're in your place of intuition. Yeah. So you, and it goes back to listening. Yeah. Anybody else? Comments? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the quality of space. Yeah. To, like, 
still as you're already across the room and wrapping it up. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, um, especially in situations like, like we're talking about with burnout, so many situations that are beyond your capacity to clean that up. Yeah. And to give the space to what's happening to another mm-hmm. person, to be in their process, to be in their suffering and being in presence, yeah. but without wrapping it up. Yeah. <coughs> to me, there's that, that has a, it speaks to empathy plus um, empathy plus space creates compassion. Yeah. And and the space means that we're not the same. When I eat, your stomach doesn't get filled up. We're not exactly the same. And to create space for that difference is intimacy. The other is merger. You know, has anyone anyone here ever done a codependent relationship? Amazing. They're amazing. They're so good. They're good for like two years. They're good. Because it's merger, right? You're in love with each other's image. There's no relationship there. And uh, the way we think usually about samadhi is merger. But actual intimacy, yoga, is not merger. It's difference. It's difference. It's being fully in this subjectivity but also allowing someone else to be in their experience. And you can, I think, sum up the whole of this practice in this way, which is just to let there be space around places where we can't let there be space. In us, are there emotions that you have sometimes that you can't let there be space around? You can't give space to? Are there feelings you feel in your body where you can't allow space. You're just right on top of it. Or there are people in your life that you can't uh, give space. Maybe? And it's disempowering, too, to that other person. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it's almost disrespectful. Like yeah. someone was saying, if you're always cleaning up their spills, then that personal responsibility for another person is never going to fully become whatever it yeah. is. And then once in a while, you also have to push yourself a little outside of where you like to help. And this is why we go on retreats, and this is why we work in our communities, it's sometimes to, to push ourselves a little bit. We have a tendency to be conservative. Yes? I was just going to say one of my favorite quotes is um, Maslow said, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, if you're in a situation and you feel that your action is to fix things, and you've got a hammer, and there's not that space to say that, you know, there's this possibility that there's space for them to just, or for the situation to kind of... Proceed and unfold, yeah. and your job is actually not to fix it. Although yeah. your maybe your own perception is that I could help here, or I could do something. Yeah. Um, then it goes back to kind of skillful action, and you know, what would be my intention? Yes. Um, is it coming from a place to help? Is it coming from a place to fix? Yes. And then it goes back to what your intention and how it will affect. Yes. Uh, the situation. Yes. If you do take action. Yeah. Yeah, and this gives rise to to the yamas. Non, non, the yamas, oh, okay. the nonviolence, ahimsa, 
uh, satya, which is honesty. Usually translated as truth. I can't go near that word, but honesty. To really look, to really look at your life. To really be honest with the body. Not the body you want or think you should have, or to really be honest with this with this body. Um, to be honest with what you can do. I'm a little bit guilty of sometimes I'm not honest with what I can do. And I do way, way too much. Probably already you've heard me talk about some of the things that I do. And one of the things that I'm learning is uh, how to ask for help. I don't know if any of you here have this, this problem. Yeah. Um, but what, and actually, I'm good at asking for help. What I'm not good at is knowing when I should ask for help. <laughs> you know. and, and, and I've started to realize that the, this is a practice of, of honesty. This summer, we had a one-month practice period where we practice all day, every day. Mar- Marcella was there, and Susan was there. Um, we practice every day f- for a month together. And so what we did on the first day was we did this little process together where the first thing people uh, recognize is what happens for them when they can't take it anymore. Because we know if we're going to practice together for a month, there's going to be a point where you can't take it anymore. And for us to really examine on the first day, what happens when we start to want to check out? Do we disappear? Uh, do we become aggressive? Do we, but, but what are the stages on the way? And then we decided to take one of the yamas and to, and to commit to using it. For any time in the month, we start to want to get away, to escape. And so we took a, a, a string and, and uh, we told a partner about what it was that we imagined was going to be a problem. And then we picked one yama. Mine was honesty. That when I started to feel like I wanted to check out in the month, I would use honesty as a way to look at what was going on. Other people chose other things like not harming. Uh, and then your partner ties this string around your bracelet, so, uh, around your wrist, rather, so you don't, you don't forget. And this is the main practice for the month. Second thing we did was then we took another string that was much smaller. Can you see it? Uh, it was about this big. And this string represented counter-motivations or failure to acknowledge that you're, just by saying you're going to practice honesty, some part of us is going to try and screw that up <laughs> and be dishonest and, and want to, to go in the old groove again. And then you tie this other string to give some respect to how we're going to fail over and over again because we made this commitment. And this was the main practice we did for the month, actually. When we practiced asana, when we did group practices, when we practiced meditation, pranayama, the main practice was to stay connected to this yama that you chose. And again, in order, they're nonviolence, 
ahimsa, satya, honesty, asteya, teya is where we get the word to take, uh, brahmacharya, the wise use of energy, and apadigraha, not grabbing for things, not being greedy. Imagine if this was your main practice for five years. Before you get to do any of the other lives, is just to really work on this. And why I'm mentioning this is because I, I just I want to, to to tease out this important theme that Patanjali is not just talking about individual awakening. To see in this practice that it's about our relationships and recognizing interconnectedness. Does this make sense? What's that? Oh yeah. 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 What I'm covering in this talk is in the book Yoga for a World Out of Balance, um, but also there's a new book that comes out in two days. Which after class we're going to go to the second floor and uh, and I'm going to sell these books. Um, and uh, the the new book is about yoga and Buddhism. And what it's doing, uh, I, I, I spent some time yesterday afternoon uh, debating with Cindy Lee, who, who wrote a book called, uh, some of you might be interested, I'm doing this, this online blog this next few weeks for Tricycle Magazine about yoga and Buddhism. And part of this book was a reaction to Cindy Lee's book, um, which is called Yoga, Body, Buddha, Mind. And this pervasive idea that yoga is about your body and Buddhism is about your mind. And saying, but actually, both are grounded in a very deep commitment to ethics. Uh, To really open in meditation practice is very physical. And to really go deep in a physical practice is very psychological, actually. So really, to, to go beyond this conversation and to really see how these practices enrich each other. And so that, that's what this book, this book is about. So, uh, but you, you can read it. Yeah. Yeah, to remember. To remember. Yeah. yeah. I, I, the only reason why I write these books is because I forget. And uh, I have this thing that's been going on that I'm just starting to learn. It's like every, so I, I've been writing lots of books. And every time I finish a book, I have a major crisis in my life. And everything that I wrote in the book doesn't work. (laughs) And then I have to write a new book to deal with the the crisis. And um, so anyways, that's the thing about books. Uh Uh, What's that? No, it was on the telephone. (laughs) But... uh, but but I'm going to go do something with her in, in New York in a few weeks. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I, I came across your book, The Inner Traditions, uh-huh. which I, which I loved. Yeah. And that's why what you're saying now, you know, I, I, I would write out this, I think it's in terms of title number and get it. But you know, I also found through there, does it really only take you weeks to write a book? Can you just write it and then let go? Because, uh, didn't you say something, somewhere in there that yeah. you, you wrote it and then you were with... You were I wrote the first book in three weeks. Yes, 
I went to Cape Cod. I sat in a room and I just wrote it um, because, I, like, I had like some kind of constipation or something, and like <laughs> I needed to get get this out. And um, so you have twenty years of research and practice, and then and then oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I realized but that. yeah, but to be honest, you know, when when it's done, I also don't like. I'm so, I don't like it. And that's why I'm motivated to, to right in the next. do another. Uh, that was a, a re- revelation for me. Yeah. As a, as a I, know, I think it was only dumb, but to be able to, to do it and go and, and but to come up with something that is made a big difference to me as a reader, I thought that was. Yeah. Which was part of the process of revising and editing The first two books were not edited. Actually, they should have been edited. <laughs> That's why I can't read them. But but we can talk about writing process in another in another workshop, which is a whole thing in itself that I don't know anything about. But um, uh, let's take one more question or comment about about what I've spoken about, and then I want to do some something together. A, a really smart comment. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't clear, but I mean, you did go into empathy and compassion, but I didn't hear you actually say it. Maybe you said it all yeah. already. Empathy. What is your definition of empathy? Just, well, I'll let you do that. That's all I want. And sorry, it's not that smart. Um, I think empathy is just a kind of natural morphic resonance where. Um, when we're open, we feel other people's joy, and we also feel their sorrow. And then you felt, and it seemed like the whole group did, though, however, empathy can be useless. In fact, it could even be not destructive, that's a heavy word, but it could not produce anything positive. We need something more than just empathy. Some of you know this, you know, there are techniques that you can use to be more empathic. Uh, I always joke that, like, if you have a friend who's studying psychotherapy, just not to hang out with them for a few years. Because usually they have these really good empathy techniques. So, like, you sit with them and they tilt their head to the side. And they nod a lot. And, and, and like, you've, they've lost their personality. And they're just, like, so empathetic. And it's kind of creepy a little bit. Um, but compassion is when they've let that go because they embody it, and, and, but they're still separate in themselves. So they'll nod, but sometimes they won't agree with you. They're not just feeling what you're feeling. They're feeling what you're feeling, and they still have their critical faculty and personality and, and, and also places where they, they also can't hear you. That's also in the realm of compassion. Yeah. The word c- compassion has two really important words in it. Pathos, which is suffering, dukkha, and calm, community, or, or t- togetherness. Actually, the word calm in Sanskrit is sam, like samadhi, uh, which is the, this, where we get community, um, which means to bring together. So you could say that compassion is also like doing dukkha together, D- doing pain and lack together. 
And uh, um, when we're suffering, usually where we feel grounded is when there's someone who's there suffering with us. I don't care too much about their technique. I just want to know that they're they're really there. They're really there. You know, uh, a few years ago, I had I had a, a tumultuous few months, and the people that I wanted to be close with were people who would just come over and uh, like make tea or help me make some food. I didn't. I didn't want anyone to like process something with me. I just wanted to like eat with someone. Uh, when a tsunami hits New Orleans, when oil hits New, we we don't need people to explain whether that came from God or something. We need people who can give out blankets and to give out food. And. Um, this is what I'm trying to suggest with your practice, to, 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 to see that the, the way we live our practice is in everything that we do, is expressing intimacy in everything we do, how we walk and how we eat and how we relate to others and how we, we do parenting and how we do... How many of you are kids of parents? <laughs> like, how you relate to your parents imperfectly. And, um, and if you can't, if you can't do it, sometimes we can't do it, uh, to find other ways to do it. So, some people's parents have passed away maybe, or maybe they're so much challenged in their relationship with their parents, they have to find ways of, of working with other parents or other elders to, to, to fulfill that same archetypal groove. You know. And... Um, this is how we express, express our practice. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I thought you thought I was putting my hand up. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, I didn't cover anything that um, I, I was planning to. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to spend a little bit of time sort, sort of learning from, from each other because uh, I've talked for a long time. And um, so here's what I, what I would like to do is um, I would like you to, to um, have, get, get a partner, pick somebody. It doesn't matter if you know them or, or don't know them. And I just want you to sit face to face. And... Um, I just want you to talk together about ahimsa of speech, uh, internally and externally. So uh, not having the intention to cause harm internally and externally. And I, I just want you to sit, sit with your partner, and I just want you to take turns. So the first person will just go, and I just want you to talk for a few minutes about how you cause harm internally with speech and how you cause harm externally with speech.
And I want you to be honest, because this doesn't, who cares if you, it, it, we all want to be clever, you know, and, and cool. But I just want you to share honestly with your partner uh, what it means to look at your day today or your week. You don't pick your whole life. <laughs> just pick like today or this week and just like what it's like to just look through with this lens. Okay? And then after a few minutes, just switch and you know, each of you take like three or four minutes and just switch. Okay? But before, I have to add one more thing. We're looking honestly at our lives and sharing without judgment. So if you go, you know, oh, I talk badly to myself, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> then you're doing it. You're not, you're not looking, honestly. Uh, you're filtering it. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. So I, I just want you to spend a few minutes doing this just to get a feel of what it means to work with this, this yama. Okay? So uh, find a partner. Make sure you know their names. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.